Hey, folks, I know there are lots of business owners who listen to this show. Maybe some of you never planned on running a business, but now here you are. One thing you've always got to keep in mind is how much you're spending on your operating costs. That's one of the first things we had to keep in mind with WTF. And with things costing more today than they did when we started, you want to keep your expenses down. To reduce costs and headaches, be smart and use NetSuite by Oracle, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. Reduce IT costs, cut the costs of maintaining multiple systems, improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash WTF for more. That's netsuite, N-E-T-S-U-I-T-E dot com slash WTF. All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck, buddies? What the fuck, Nicks? This is Mark Marin. This is my podcast. One of the originals. Well, I don't know if I can really say that. One of the it's an old timey podcast. Twelve years running or so. You know, when you start something that's a passion project out of pure desperation, you don't know when it will become your life's work. And this has become my life's work. Oddly enough, a lot of other podcasts have grown up around me but this is the life's work we are rooted in the og tradition of podcasting podcasting again there were people around when i started there were people before me but this is mine this is mine and it's still going very well thank you for asking how are you doing i appreciate all your support today i'm going to talk to a franklin leonard uh he's definitely a guy who has changed the way movies are made in Hollywood. He's the founder of The Blacklist, which uh, it, I don't know if you know what it is, but it started as a yearly list of the best unproduced screenplays floating around the industry. And that thing, that list, turned into one of the hottest commodities in show business. And Blacklist movies that have gotten made have earned a fortune for the studios and won uh, a lot of Academy Awards. And Franklin... Uh, is still focused on pushing studios to think differently about the movies they make, which, of course, means diversifying the industry and making sure Hollywood represents all of America. I checked into the Emmys briefly. I had this sort of empty feeling inside about something, about how, you know, it seems that there is progress being made diversifying the industry and and also, conversely, diversifying the fictions and stories that the industry makes but uh, I don't know how much impact that has on the reality we're living in. And you'll listen to my conversation with Franklin. He, he thinks that all things that you take in through your face eyes uh, has some impact in terms of how you perceive the world. And I think that's I think that's maybe true. But I, I do think it may be optimistic in terms of changing the world per se, though, if you think about the original intent of the movies created by the original Jewish kings of movies, the guys who uh, were trying to uh, integrate themselves into an America that was not necessarily hospitable to them, they then turned around and began generating an America that they could live in. And it was an America that was idealized. And ultimately, I think much of the way America looked 
in the early 20s, 30s, 40s, uh, as it evolved, was informed by the movies, the fictions that were being created. Uh, I don't know. It's deep shit. And it's possibly a speculation on my part, but uh, given how much we've learned about just how soft and mushy and absorbent the fucking human brain is, why not think that uh, illusion uh, could not change uh, what is happening in reality very easily? It's happening now in the worst of ways. So can storytelling from a diverse point of view, the many voices of the marginalized and... uh, really representing how democracy looks today in fiction. Can that illusion create a more empathetic, more democratic populace? I don't know. The illusions of conspiracy and contempt and hatred and fascist propaganda seem to have great sway, but those aren't being presented as stories or fictions in the way that a movie or television show is. Those are being presented as secret information that if you're in the know and want the truth, you can find it and then switch your perception quite easily based on your panic, fear, anger, entitlement, and uh, different degrees of desperation. Whereas I think storytelling presented as storytelling in whatever form that comes in uh, should lift the heart, open the heart, inform the heart and mind uh, to other ways of life and to other possibilities, perhaps moving in the direction of the good And that might have an impact as well. Not as satisfying as uh, the conclusiveness and uh, sure-brainedness of people that buy into conspiratorial bullshit to satisfy their own fucking horrendous, violent impulses and anger. Anyway, what I meant to say is that I'll be talking to Franklin Leonard. Interesting conversations as of late here on this show. Uh, Really satisfying and good for me, and it seems also good for people listening. Uh, Right now, I um, I went through a sort of panic this morning that I had to put in perspective by being grateful. How's your gratitude component? How's that gauge working in your brain machine? How's your input valve on the gratitude. How's the self-generator? How's the gratitude self-generator in your brain working? You know, I got off the road and I woke up and my water pressure was gone. There's a trickle of water. So I'm like, holy fuck, my house is broken. It's horrible when your house breaks. It's nice to be a homeowner. And again, these are luxury problems. And I know I'm not speaking to everybody, but the benefit of not owning a house is that when something goes wrong, it's someone else's responsibility. This is my responsibility, and I couldn't go on my hike. I know, I'm being a baby, but you don't realize what's happening. Do you hear the pace I'm talking? Do you hear the intensity I'm talking with? This is because I haven't blown out my dopamine by wearing myself down physically. So that becomes a dangerous environment for me mentally. So I'm going to have to fucking figure that out. But uh, I called two, two plumbers because I panicked. And the plumber that actually put the pipes into this place to begin with before I had the house, he was around the corner doing some pipe work at another place that the woman who used to to own this place uh, moved to. But in my panic from not hearing back from him, I called some rando, rando plumber who had good reviews. So now I got both of them on the on the uh, on the hook. And the guy who, you know, put the stuff in originally, he comes over and he looks at it and very quickly decides what needs to be done. And it's like a seven hundred dollar fix. So the second guy comes over, 300 bucks, he says, and he's doing it now. That's a $400 difference just because I got a second opinion. 
I guess the lesson here is, and most of you know this, uh, why not get the second opinion? I was sort of in a panic emergency situation, but uh, I saved myself 400 bucks. It's not nothing. It's not nothing. All right. But the gratitude thing was when I had water trickling out of my faucet, not trickling, it was coming out, but there was no pressure. I was able to say, hey, I'm fortunate to have fucking water. But I was able to put that in perspective. Is that, is that a good thing? Or I shouldn't reward myself that. I, that should, I, should I pat myself on the back for realizing that there are people in much bigger trouble than me who don't have any water and, and, and feel good and take a moment of gratitude and a nice deep breath as I panic and wait for two plumbers? I'm a fucking just a jerk off. Jerk off white liberal guy sometimes. Hey, at least you have a trickle. Yeah, that's going to be a physical thing, too. That's going to be a body thing, too. Ugh. All right, look, I'm going to talk to Franklin Leonard right now, and uh, it's it's a good talk. It's an interesting talk, and you can check out everything about The Blacklist at blcklst.com. This is me and Franklin Leonard. Sometimes I wish I paid more attention in school, or in some cases, any attention at all. There are probably a lot of things I could have gotten more out of, like literature, and now it's probably not in the cards to go back to school and study the classics. But luckily for us, there's a new podcast called The Foxed Page that dives deep into the best books of all time. This is basically like the best possible college English class, but more relaxed and fun. No pressure of grades or needing to prepare something to say in class. It's only the books you want to read and know about presented by best-selling author Kimberly Ford. Everything from Cormac McCarthy to Madame Bovary, from classics like Frankenstein to modern hits like Lessons in Chemistry. I love Ireland, but I missed the boat on James Joyce. The Foxed Page has a three-part series on Dubliners, and that's a pretty great starting point. Want to get the most out of what you read? The Foxed Page is for you. Get it now wherever you get your podcasts we're not like remind me i know i did we meet on a plane we met no no no. we met at the podcast movement conference in like fort worth when i was we, we were doing our podcast with um with earwolf and uh, so Adam Sachs and a bunch of us went out for lunch uh, at oh, some okay. point. It was where was it in, in, in like Fort Worth, Texas? It was, yeah. And not Dallas. It was like we, we flew into Dallas, Fort Worth, and you were kind enough to to give me a ride back yeah. to the airport. Oh, okay, that's right. That's the flight thing. What yeah. was that? I, I can't remember what that. I know there was one podcast uh, convention that I did. A, I spoke at that I realized was a racket. I don't think I don't. I have no idea. I can't remember what happened at that one. I feel the, like there are a lot of rackets springing up generally right now. And, oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> like around yeah. all of these new spaces. We had one of the great grifter uh, presidents who I mean, uh, who made the grift the thing. There's no reason to follow the rules of any kind. Apparently not. Yeah, and everybody's it's out. Sort of uh, staggering. It's. I don't know what to do with it, man. Neither do I, because I was very much a rule follower growing yeah, up. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so to discover that. People just don't have like just that like it's possible. They don't care, and that weirdly now all of a sudden, like no one, well not no one, but like a significant percentage of people don't care at all. Yeah, just get what you can. Yeah, fuck it. Amidst 
real stakes too. Like on some level, like the, when things like I don't know, like do I really care about certain grifts? Yeah, not really. No, no. I mean, I mean, like because when you really think about the the heart of America and what it's built on, you know, there's a good part of it that's grifting. Yeah, yeah. Religion and uh, snake oil, hundred percent. Yeah. But but with some real stakes now yeah. around the grifting, that's where I'm just kind of like, how do you not care about this? And how do I, yeah. and, and and more yeah. terrifyingly, how do you reestablish a world where people do well, care? I don't know, dude. You, are you going to tell me? I I, I wish I could because <laughs> I got nothing. It's, but it's like, how do you? Yeah. If there is no God, then all yeah. is permitted. Like, what is the? Oh yeah, yeah. And I don't think I don't know if you know if that's the right reference, but it feels like it might yeah. be. All right. Well, well, in terms of like even with with movies and and television and yeah. books and literature and all this stuff that is the world that we move through. Yeah. Uh, less and less of that seems to matter. I don't know if it does matter less. And unfortunately, I mean, fortunately and unfortunately, I don't know if there's a way to quantify it. Well, that's, I think that's my problem is I'm making assumptions from where I'm sitting. Like right. when I look at the world, I'm like, there's too much to watch. Uh, you know, right. I, I get dispatches of what's quality. I get yeah. word of mouth about what's good. But uh, the thing that's bothering more about uh, outside of the grift is just that there is no center to this thing anymore. Right. And, and you know, you sort of have to kind of navigate like, well, this is my... You kind of like you were talking when you walked in here. You're we are awake. We're alive. It's a, it's on some level that's a good day. Right. And then if you really take uh, and assess the life you're living, which is generally small and has to do with breakfast and yeah. you know putting gas in your car, you're like, well, this is my reality. But a lot of times I'm like, that's as far as I'm clear on what yeah. the reality of shit is. Well, it's interesting. I think that there's like a question around like reality and truth in a sort of journalistic public yeah. forum way, right? And then there's a question of like reality and truth around like the culture that we're consuming. And I right. think what's really interesting about this moment is like if you look at the numbers, yeah, people are watching more movies and more television than they ever had before. Like in the U.S. in general, in general, and that's not just a pandemic thing. Although it surged obviously during yeah. the pandemic, but if you look at the hours of content, the number of movies, and they may not be watching them in movie theaters, right? But just the sheer number, that number is going up just in terms of like people in the US and sort of throughout the developed world but as technology sort of extends into the you know formerly undeveloped world yeah. more people are watching more stuff yeah and so i weirdly think that it's impossible that that stuff doesn't have a consequence uh-huh. right and an increasing consequence a consequence a, for people personally or economically all, all the above yeah. but i think in in again sort of these unquantifiable ways yeah. right like right. when i watch a movie yeah. whether i like it or not my view of the world is going to be slightly altered. Yeah. Right? Oh, for sure. And and that doesn't mean in like, oh, I changed my mind about X or Y, but it may mean that like, you know, I make assumptions about the people that I meet. I make yeah. assumptions about myself. I yeah. think about the big questions in life differently somehow. Right. And if tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions, if not a billion people are seeing the same thing, like when you put that into the water supply, it affects right. something. Again, how you quantify it, I have no idea. Yeah, but this is also like at the core of of uh, I, I I'm wary to call it your mission, but I mean no, we're it's, not, it's 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 adjacent for sure. Uh huh. That that uh, but since we're not talking about every movie. Weirdly, I think every movie I like it, it, I struggle to think of any film any anything yeah. that doesn't um, if you watch it or watch enough of it. It's not going to slightly affect, right? So you can have a terrible movie. Right? I, I get it, mess. but like, does the butterfly effect? It's not even a butterfly effect. Yeah, of course, it's going to slightly affect. Like, I've had these moments where I, I have, 
I, I have things in my head that are connected to scenes in movies, but I can't put my finger on what the scene is, but I understand the feeling. Yeah. Like, I'll have a feeling, and I'll attach it to a movie I've seen. Yeah, I, for months, I, I couldn't figure out yeah. what this feeling was, and it was oddly Cecil B. DeMille oh, wow. telling the guy who was trying to get Norman Desmond's car for a shoot to leave her alone. Yeah. <laughs> what is that? But, but yeah. I think this stuff sticks in yeah. a real way in our brains and it affects how we think and sort of move around, move throughout the world. And so, like, look, there are going to be some things that are not very good, not very many people see. Those things are not going to have a, a huge effect. Sure. But the sort of aggregate total of all of the stuff yeah. that gets made yeah. definitely does. And the question is, is like, what is in that giant basket of stuff? Okay. And who gets to see it? And, yeah. and those are the, the sort of things that I think a lot about. There's this like 13th century Scottish poet who talks yeah. about like, if I can write the songs of a nation, what do I care who writes the laws? Right. And I sort of have always believed that on some level, you know, politics lives downstream from culture and, and sort of the stories that we tell ourselves about who matters and, and why they matter and, and what right and wrong is, sort of going back to what we were talking about before about like, yeah. what is permissible, yeah. um, that begins to determine what is permissible in the ways that we interact in our daily lives when we're not in the movie theater or watching things on our TVs or our random devices. Right. Well, it's interesting because I was talking to Brendan about it. Like, you know, even at the beginning of films, now I, you know, we can talk about the blacklist. I know you talk about it a lot, and I and I and I need to understand where it's at uh, and what exactly how how it changed things because yeah. I have a hard time wrapping my brain around things. But but um, but like when you think about the beginning of film, you know these were you know these were Jews. Some of them you know trying to avoid being killed. I mean, in yeah. a great sense. Uh, it might have been a little before that, but nonetheless, in general, Jews are trying to avoid being yeah. killed at that time. They come, they create this industry where they they manufacture an illusion that uh, p- that that seems like a nicer place to live. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, look, I, I actually think it's really interesting if you go back even sort of prior to yeah. sort of the industrialization of industrialization of the industry. I mean, D.W. Griffith, not a Jew. Not definitely not, not a Jew. Not a Jew. Not not necessarily correctly minded. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, like you know, Hollywood. I don't know that they've ever reckoned with the fact that our first big blockbuster totally was, racist was Birth of a Nation yeah. and totally racist. And and this is a great example. A celebration of, like, of the Confederacy. A celebration of the Confederacy. <laughs> and here's and these are things that I've only yeah. learned about recently. I mean, this one I kind of knew, which was the rise of the Klan in the 20th century is really initiated by Birth of a Nation coming out. Really? And that a it lot validated of, them. It, it validated them and gave them inspiration. I, I I can't remember the exact sort of dates, but I want to say that like the gathering at Stone Mountain was like, like in the wake of the release of the movie. Mm. And, and separate from that, the the white robes, yeah, the burning crosses. A lot of that iconography came from the film. Really? Yeah. And these are things that I only learned about recently because I sort of have gone down like a historical rabbit hole in this uh-huh. respect. But like that is the power of this medium. And look, when you have something like Birth of a Nation that is the only big movie out at the time, literally, that is the power of this stuff. And I think that we have to think about it and, and sort of reckon with what that means. And again, and look, film and television and Hollywood is part and parcel of American culture and yeah. has historically made content for American culture and assumptions about what that American culture are undergird all the decisions that Hollywood makes. And so we're not separate from the rest of the country. We like to sort of think of ourselves as like, you know, we're the sort of shining city on a hill where yeah. everybody's liberal, but like our actions don't 
necessarily back that up in full outside sure. of, you know, political donations and wearing ribbons on red carpets. It's interesting, though. Yeah. I mean, like Birth of a Nation and D.W. Griffith, that was the beginning of, you know, I, I mean, I'm correcting myself because I think that was the beginning of United Artists, which was really not Jewish. I mean, it was it was Mary Pickford, yeah. Charlie Chaplin, Douglas Fairbanks yeah. and Griffith. Right. Or something right. well, like that. But I think there was a sort of um, again, my historical understanding is not perfect on this. But but my what I've been told is yeah. that, you know, the, the part of the reason why, you know, early Hollywood had such a such a, a, a strongly represented Jew, Jewish community is because they couldn't get jobs in New York. Right. right. It they, was like right. finance they, is right. not available yeah. to us. You, All these other organizations are not available to us. So let's let's go build our own thing. That's right. How do you. Yeah, because. Right. It was the, the challenge of figuring out how to pass. And there were a lot of institutions that wouldn't allow them. Yeah. Got it. But uh, but like where now, given that you've created this this tool for the industry, like where did where did you start? Where'd you grow up? Columbus, Georgia. I mean, I was an oh, army really? brat. So my, I was born in Hawaii and like lived in Texas and Kansas and Germany for three years when I was very young. But we moved to Columbus, Georgia, which is where my dad. The bulk of the childhood? Yeah, from like eight to 17. And your dad was always in the military? Um, well, he joined the military to pay for med school. Um, okay. You know, black, first in his family to go to college, went to Tuskegee, uh, you know, paid for medical college of Georgia where he was, I think, the third ever black student by going into the military. And really? then, yeah, retired as a full colonel. Like, you know, he was both a doctor and an army officer for, you know, pretty much my entire childhood. Wow. Is he still around? Yeah, still around, still still teaching medicine, working as a What as kind a doc- of doctor? Uh, pediatrician. Oh. Neon- a neonatology specialist. So mm-hmm. premature babies. Like that's pretty specific. It, it, it's a really it's a wild thing. I think you know, with, with your parents, you sort of know them as your parents, and yeah. then as you become an adult, you sort yeah. of realize like, I definitely couldn't have done any of that. Like, right. like <laughs> raising three <laughs> raising three black kids in the deep south while you know being responsible uh, for the lives of premature babies and being a, a, you know, a colonel in the army. Not one of those things had, yeah. could I manage. Um, and you sort of, I don't know, I, I have renewed respect for my parents sort of every day that I traverse adults. That's, I, that's weird because I'm kind of going the other way. <laughs> <laughs> I was, look, I was, my parents are dope. I was very, I was very, very lucky. It sounds I mean, like that. Yeah, they like, were uh, uh, kind of, uh, um, you know, they got things done. They, I mean, yeah. Like, How many kids? Three kids. Well, yeah, I mean, me, my younger brother, my younger sister, mm-hmm. um, you know, my parents, my mom, they're still together. My mom was a teacher. Um, really? Yeah. And, what, and, what, co- what year? Uh, she taught sixth and eighth grade science at the school that my siblings and I went to well, this to get a tuition break. Noble uh, undertakings. I mean, look, they get a good, my, my, and my siblings are a lot more impressive than I am. Oh, really? Um, what they end up doing? My younger brother was a professional soccer player in really? the MLS, uh, and then when he tore his Achilles tendon, uh, he then uh, went to medical school and is now an emergency room physician in New York. Oh, my God. Have you talked yeah. to him through the pandemic? Yeah. I mean, he's very ca- casual about it, but no, yeah. I mean, he's like, look, when he left soccer to sort of pursue medicine, it was, I want to find a, a sort of team sport where you sort of, you know, you prepare and you prepare and you prepare, and then you're sort of in it. Yeah. And I don't can't really imagine any environment like that with higher stakes than an emergency room during a pandemic. Oh my God. Um, I just like, it, 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 you know, as time goes on the exhaustion factor yeah, and the, you know, I just, uh, I, 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 I don't know how one sees that much death. I don't know either. I mean, I think, it, it, I, I think about this in the context of my father as well as, you know, sort of working with premature babies. Mm. I, I think you, 
I think you sort of train for it. I think that like, you know, your capacity to deal with those things improves over time. I think it's one of the reasons why my brother is so successful is that like so much of his career prior to medicine was preparing his body and mind to endure these sort of like really adverse circumstances. And I guess like, honestly, sadly, uh, you know, what I've realized over the last year or two is that, that, you know, death is as common and as un, uh, not unusual as birth and life. That yeah. there, it's an inevitable thing. It's an inevitable thing. You just don't want it to happen to too many people at the same time. I mean, <laughs> that's a little a overwhelming. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, and then like my little sister yeah. does like work on like women's maternal mortality and like works with queer youth and uh, is an amazing mother of two kids. Wow. So I'm, you know, doing my best. You're the movie guy. I'm doing my best. Yeah. <laughs> so do you live with that sort of like the idea of living up to... Uh, uh, an almost sort of selfless uh, kind of noble undertakings of your uh, I mean look I think that the work siblings I think that the work we do is similarly aligned but I think that, like you know do you did, did yeah. you have to bend it into that no I think that was sort of where we're, where I'm coming from with the work that I'm doing in movies especially now I yeah. think is, is directionally consistent with the work they're doing but like look the proof's in the pudding like, like you know it's very clear. Are you saving lives, man? No, no. And this is the thing. I mean, I remember we were at a wedding together a couple of years ago, and I was telling some nonsense Hollywood story. Yeah. And then my bro- I was like, so what's, how's it going for you? And he's like, yeah, this guy had a heart attack in the ER, and like he walked out two days later. It was amazing. And I'm like, yeah, your story wins. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah, okay. Let me tell you about this script that I uh, yeah, championed and got made exactly. and may be up for an Oscar. Exactly. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, I, I, I literally saved this guy's life yesterday, and that was like a uh, Thursday. Yeah, and then that's, you just quietly sip your drink. Yeah. Oh, good well, good job. I'm like, let me, let, me, let me grab you guys' drinks. <laughs> yeah. Let me take care of that for you. But where does, your, where does your, uh, your sort of journey start with that? So you knew you didn't want to be a doctor. But I, I was... Well, I'm not until college. So I went to college thinking that I was going to sort of be on a sort of sciences track. I was like a math science kid. Really? I, I, I was Steve Urkel. Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was... I, I, glasses? Uh, no glasses, okay. but literally everything. I mean, I, I was like, I was captain of the, the math team at my high school. And like... Really? I, there was a, a Twitter thing recently where someone was like, you know, what kind of person were you in high school? Or what kind of nerd were you in yeah. high school? And I tagged in a friend of mine from high school and he was like... You were the kind of nerd that taught the calculus class at our high school. Wow. And I was like, right, oh, I've forgotten about that. So, so you get it. You get the math thing. It, it, it's always just came very easily to me. Really? Yeah. I, I, came, I couldn't figure it out. I had to tap out of chemistry. Algebra was about where I hit the wall. Really? Yeah. If I, it's not charm-based, I'm not great at it. <laughs> I tapped out when things started getting very theoretical. Uh-huh. Like for me, like if it's numbers and maybe a few letters, we're good. When we start talking about like multiple, <laughs> multiple dimensions of space, uh-huh. yeah, my brain just- No uh, good. It, it, can't can't go that far and that basically happened when i got to college right so like i'm looking around and i'm like being good at math in georgia is one thing being good at math at harvard is a very different thing right like so you were with the top notch math nerds these kids i mean look you know we're talking fields medals like you know pioneering making progress in math yeah building on history right that was never going to be me yeah so um so is that a hard hit to take it really, in retrospect, maybe it should have been. Weirdly, it wasn't. And I think in part because I said, like, I didn't have much of a social life in high school as yeah. a math guy. Probably wouldn't have in college. And this was an opportunity. Yeah. To, like, okay, now I can sort of, like, explore these other parts of myself. And so I did. I joined the literary magazine. I got involved in politics. And that sort of... At Harvard. Yeah. And that's sort of where I got pulled into the the river that, it, that I think brought me to sort of my destination now. So you go there as a math major? 
Yeah. But you don't really have to declare for a couple of years there. The core curriculum is the same for everybody for a couple of years. Is that how it works? If I remember correctly, you can begin to take courses in your major. And if yeah. you think you know where you're going, there's some things you should take freshman year. Right. You don't have to declare, I believe, until your sophomore year. And the literary magazine, but not the Lampoon? Not the Lampoon. Never thought of myself as funny. And yeah. so, therefore, it never even occurred Were to me. Were any of your classmates people we know, like from uh, from uh, comedy films and any other areas? Um, for sure, but You're I'm not that you blanking know. right now. Yeah. No, I mean, look, my, the, yeah, certainly. I don't know how old are you are. Were you, are you with 42. the Novak? Yeah, Novak was there when I was there. Yeah. Um, like, Nick Malice was around. Uh-huh. Um, Many Emmys have been won by my classmates, for sure. <laughs> for sure. Now, what what did you what were your feelings about Harvard as a as an institution? As somebody who was there, as yeah. a as a black man who was there. Yeah, I mean, I think as a black kid coming from West Central Georgia going to Harvard, it, it like it felt like a fantasy. It was like they're all, and mainly for me, it was about the people. Mm. Because, you know, everyone you meet is, like, interesting in these, like, absolutely bananas ways, right? Yeah. Like, I remember being in a party yeah. and talking to somebody who was like, yeah, it was like this or Juilliard. And I was like, oh, well, like, okay. He's like, yeah, I'm basically, like, I, I, I'm here because, like, I wanted to go to college, but, like, I'm, I'm going to be an oboist. And, like, I'll probably play for the Philharmonic. Or, like, I have already played for the L.A. Philharmonic, right? right? Like, these right. were people that you would meet after doing, like, you know, yeah. after, like, you know, shotgunning a beer and and like oh what do you do it's like oh um you know i'm sort of pioneering this kind of mathematics right and then like you check in on them via google and you're like oh you're still doing that work now and like you know you're a full professor at an ivy institution you know um so i think that was the part for me where i was just like this is incredible yeah there are so many different kinds of people so many kinds of different kinds of people doing amazing different things and i just sort of relished that did you feel pressure I think I felt a lot of pressure that I put on myself more than anything. From but like from from just your family, I imagine. No, I mean I think my my family. I think just I look. I I, I really it's it's. I think about this a lot yeah. now, it, often in the context of therapy. But yeah. I I don't really. I think my parents were all, always. I think they sort of set me down like in a direction, and yeah. like the Energizer Bunny, I just barreled through it. And so well, they, were, pressure- they were grounded. I mean, they, that was good. They, yeah, you know, they they probably created a good environment. But I oh for sure. But I also just don't know if I had like if I'd started washing out what mm. their reaction would have been. But right. I just never did. Oh, it's still I, time. There's still time. Uh, believe me. And I think as in adulthood, <laughs> there, there have been different conversations. But like at that stage, yeah. it was very much just like. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to do what's necessary to do it. And I was lucky enough that I was able to do most of it. Well, what did, what was it though? What I mean, what did you end up coming out of college with in terms like the literary magazine? And did you what was the major ultimately? Uh, the major ended up being social studies, which is just like Harvard thing for social and political theory. Uh, and and where what did you feel like once you got out of Harvard that it was going to be politics or or writing or what was it? So this was the thing I think. You know, through through middle school, high school, and even into college, yeah. the goal was always just like graduate from college and do really well academically. Right. I don't know that I had a plan after that, and huh. I think that you know, yeah. through the four years of college, it started to sort of like these hazy sort of impressions of what a future might look like started to come up. And out of school, I just sort of barreled through a bunch of different ones. So I ran, a, I helped run a congressional campaign in Cincinnati, Ohio, right out of school. Um, like literally drove to Cincinnati the day after I graduated from college. Uh, Why Cincinnati? 
uh, a teaching assistant in a class that I'd had my junior year decided to run for Congress. This guy named John Cranley, who was actually mayor of Cincinnati for years and is actually running for governor now. So I did that. I moved to Trinidad, which is where my mom's dad is from, and wrote for the Guardian newspapers for six months. Um, I had been offered a job at McKinsey. The Guardian out of UK? Out of the UK, yeah. It yeah. was like sort of Caribbean affiliate. Uh-huh. Um, I had been offered a job my senior year at McKinsey & Company, the consulting firm. Um, and sort of a year out, I hadn't come up with a better plan. So I ended up moving to New York and working as a management consultant for two years. What's that, what is that job? I mean, I get like, yeah. so politics, when you got involved with politics, were you yeah. an idealist? Did you, was there? Very much so. Okay. So it was you weren't just doing it to, to understand politics. You thought like you, no. know, you could change, facilitate a, change. Yeah, I was a junkie. I definitely was an idealist. Yeah. I definitely thought I could facilitate change. And I think that experience was like, you know, a, a running sobering uh, you could say that yeah I was gonna say running like you know headlong into a brick wall because mm. um, you just realize and this is like you know pre-Citizens United pre-Trump um, the extent to which sort of money in politics and sort of the way these sort of organizations uh, exist and sort oh, yeah. of move through the world and that was like okay maybe that's not for me and yeah. then I went and you know oh, the, it, the compromise like that's the weird thing that's happening now and I, I don't mean to interrupt you no. though I do is that you you realize like there that idealism in politics not only is it almost ridiculous, but the compromises that you know politicians have to make, that it takes a certain type of personality yeah. to come out of politics or be in politics with any moral code, right? Yeah. And, and, and either that gets compromised, but what we see now is that there never was one yeah. for most of them. Yep. They knew the, the score of getting in. That's right. And I think that it's one of the reasons why it's frustrating. It's also one of the reasons why I, I really admire the ones who sort of... Yeah do have an, a, a sort sure. of very clear moral code and are very clearly like, look, this is who I am. If you don't want to vote for me, vote me out. Sure. Because there's, no, there's not a lot of yeah. like, you know. Right. This is, there's pretty good clarity around who, who I am as a person and what I believe and, yeah. and, and, and the decisions that I'm making. That's a rare person. It's a very rare person. So you hit the brick wall in politics. So I hit the brick wall in politics. Went to Trinidad and wrote for The Guardian. Was which that I think, a great thing? It was amazing. And in retrospect, like the idea of being like, I'm bored, uh, you know, of sitting on the beach with a laptop and writing um, <laughs> is a decision, is it idiotic decision that can only be made at the age of 21 mm-hmm. or 22 I guess I was at that point yeah um, that's what I, everyone's working towards <laughs> I mean Lord knows I am now um, yeah. if I could have only <laughs> told myself yeah I but I think um, I think that time is really good for me to decompress like I said sure. I think I had been chasing towards the end of this college thing jumped into another thing and then really didn't have a clear sense of what I wanted from life yeah um, I took the McKinsey job management you know, consulting management what consulting is what is it um, that's the best way to explain this. Companies pay management consultants to tell them how to run their companies better, uh-huh. basically. Wow. Um, so, and they're, they're a big one. McKinsey is, yeah, arguably the biggest. And, and so, so I, I'm just trying to, like, I'm no, just no, no, trying no. to learn something. So, if it, like, they have, like, uh, templates or like there's yeah well so they i think is that the right word or so, strategies so i'm a company i come in and say hey, we're having this problem or i'm trying to go into this new market or whatever yeah. it is and because the consultancy has seen many 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 problems right oh okay. they can diagnose the problem pretty quickly and propose solutions oh, because they've yeah. seen it before they right. can apply thinking and they also you know they sort of pride themselves on hiring smart problems right whatever right there are consequences of that though, right? What like there's mean? all, you know, it's one thing to say, we're going to make this business decision and, and, you know, ha- and, and bear the consequences of that decision as yeah. a company. It's a completely different one to make recommendations to a company where you're not bearing the decisions and you may not have sure. the sort of same moral framework uh, that a company has to deal with because you're not the one necessarily right. 
you know, you're not taking the hit. You're not taking the hit. And look, I just think there's a lot of questions around like optimizing around profit. Right. Well, I mean, it gets back to <laughs> politics, right? Yeah. It gets back, like there's a slow chipping away. That's right. Uh, and, and I think that where we started at the beginning of this conversation about grifting is where, you know, there is that fine line, you know, at, when you have, there's some people that are just shameless grifters. And, you know, in some ways there's an honesty to it, but the slow chipping away of, of moral integrity uh, and rationalizing, you know, how one goes about making more money is, is not grifting. It's, it's worse in a way. Hmm. I mean, I agree. Yeah. <laughs> I you, mean, know, you know what I mean? It's sort of like it, because you're hiding something. Yeah. And look, anybody can go online and sort of, you know, see sort of the ways in which management consultants, go, you know, Enron was the big one back, you mm, know, when I was oh, sort yeah. of in that world. Um, but, but there are more. So did you hit another wall? I, I did. I think it was a different wall. I, I think what was great about working at McKinsey, I think similar to Harvard, was like I was around all these amazing people. Mm. And again, it was literally like talking to someone over like, you know, in the break room. And it's like, oh, you played in the LA Philharmonic when you were 14 and then got a Rhodes Scholarship. Like, and, and then you're here, the consulting firm, though? But, right. I mean, this is but we were, yeah. Because huh. it's like, okay, this is a, a well-paying job that looks good on a resume, right? And, uh -huh. and, and these these firms recruit very well. It's no different than like the people that end up at, you know, these sort of like white shoe law firms after having, you know, these amazing sort of, you know, early careers. Well, that, well that's interesting because that is the sellout, right? In a way. I, I mean, maybe. I mean, also oh, yeah, maybe yeah. like, you know, that's people, what you're supposed to do. People want to provide for their kids. I don't know. I, I think the older I get, I'm. Do you have kids? I don't. Oh, yeah. Um, which is probably why I can continue to try to build my own company. Yeah. Um, no, look, I, I think... And live freely and enjoy your life. There you go. <laughs> there you go. Um, if possible. But, but, but no, look, I think, I think we all have to make yeah. these decisions. Sure, of course, of course. You know, but they're, but they're not, and they're not easy, but, but we should probably all think about these decisions. Yeah, I mean, I'm, 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 I'm being a little bit of a, you know, uh, I, you know, I... Selling out, whatever that means, it doesn't always mean a negative thing. I, I think I think the definition of sellout probably deserves a, a serious uh, revisiting. Um, <laughs> yeah, because also like, like like there are people that like just yeah they're like yeah I got a real scholarship because I wanted to make money and this is a path to making money. Sure, I don't. They're probably no, not a sellout. No, I, <laughs> right? yeah, you forget that like that like just like I don't. I was never driven by the making money thing. So yeah. like, and there was people that's all they want to do right. one way or the other. Yeah, and uh, and I, I guess I don't quite understand it as well as I should. I, I, I was fortunate to make some money. I, I I feel like I'm on a similar path. It, it'd be I, I look. I would like stability. Sure, it's not the biggest priority. I'd love to be able to marry making a bunch of money with being able to do a bunch of good work. And well, that's the dream. Well, when does that, so once you do the consulting job, how does yeah. that, you know, shift into show business? So when I was living in New York and working uh, at McKenzie, I really didn't know what I wanted to do with my life at all. And um, for a few reasons, I was often staffed on media and entertainment companies. I think if I had to speculate, it's because as a black guy- As a would, consultant. Yeah. So, but like as a black guy with dreadlocks, my yeah. guess is that they were like less likely to put me in like, you know, insurance uh, companies. Right. But with media companies, people <laughs> would be like, oh, all right, maybe this guy understands so, something about like what's hip. They're, they're happy they had the black guy with dreadlocks, I, but they wanted to use him properly. I mean, look, it, it put me in a place that I think I was actually very happy to be. Yeah. So- Sometimes weirdly those things work yeah. out, right? But I, I, was, I was doing all of this work around sort of the operations of these companies, and I realized that the thing that I was much more interested in was like the stuff they were making. Uh -huh. um, 
knowing full well that the the business around them is super important to like whether those things can exist in the world and like how many people get to see them but i was more attracted to the creative part of it and so my entire analyst class got laid off with five months severance about a year after 9 11. um and that meant that i was getting a paycheck but i didn't have to go to work anymore why 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 that particular uh um part of the company get laid off oh it was just we were all the junior most staff and there just oh. wasn't yeah there wasn't as much work it was we were all the junior most folks and basically it was like I look it. we're, okay. we're going to honor our agreement to you to continue but but like don't come to the office we're, we're not paying your expenses right you have insurance you have your paycheck go work at a nonprofit. go go travel go do something yeah. that will be good for your life um but don't don't come to the office right, right. i was like hooray <laughs> give us your security yeah uh, yeah. yeah hooray that, yeah. that sounds great yeah and i found that i was doing a lot of work with with some some nonprofits, but i also found that i was watching I, I would like my day most days would be to go in from brooklyn go to kim's video on yeah. st mark's place i remember rent like three or four movies i was there i was there go back watch them back to back to back to back and then like, repeat what, the educating yourself yeah like i was like the criterion collection stuff taking recommendations from the the, the folks at the at the counter yeah. like you know sort of the internet's now like sort of usable in this sense so i'm just like learning about all kinds of stuff i'm like buying you know copies of putney swope off ebay That's like so, funny. so i was just sort of like yeah. gorging and i realized at some point i was like you know i've always loved movies the first thing i did when i got my driver's license was drive to blockbuster yeah but it never occurred to me as like a black kid in West Central Georgia that like this was something that I could do. Like it literally never occurred to me. Yeah. And so do in what way? In any way? Well, like, I knew I knew I wasn't an actor. Yeah. Uh, I, I didn't sort of think that I was a director. I had no reason to believe that I was. Yeah. And I didn't really know about any of the other sort of roles that existed out here. Yeah. And so it just never occurred to me. That you could be part of the business to making movies. Never occurred to me. Right, sure. And so, you know, now with a little bit of sort of, you know, my aperture open to the world, I was like, wait a minute, okay, there's a bunch of different jobs in this business, some of which I think I may actually have some aptitude for. Like, yeah. I can speak to creative folks and, and have a reverence for what they do, but I also can speak the language of business. Mm. Maybe that would be valuable, mm -hmm. and I love this thing, and I don't know what else I want to do, so maybe I should give that a shot. And so Show I came, business. I mean, yeah, like yeah. literally, almost a cliche. Yeah. And I came out here for the month of March of 2003, knew one person. Um, Who was that? Uh, she was an assistant at CAA mm. um, in the motion picture lit department that represents writers and directors. Uh, I had a drink with her like the second night I was here. A friend of hers stopped by and was like, oh, there's this agent at CA that needs an assistant. I think you guys would get along. Send me your resume. Send him my resume. Had the interview on Thursday, was offered the job on Friday, started on Monday. At CA. At CA. It's interesting that, that, that weird feeling of like arriving in Los Angeles and realizing the scope of the undertaking. And, and then, you, you know, kind of like you just sort of get like you talk to one person in it and you're like, this is this is in it that they're in yeah. it. it's it's. I, it, it's an exciting but daunting kind of feeling, show business, when you enter it. I think it gets more daunting the more you understand. I, at least that's what I yeah. found over the last 18 years. I mean, I remember, so I, I, I worked for a month. I went back to New York to pack up my life because I was still living in New York, technically. I had really just come out for a month you just to just snag check the it job out and a, snag yeah. a job. So I remember driving back. So I flew back to Houston, Texas, where my parents live now, bought my grandmother's car, and drove from Houston to LA. And I still remember driving into LA on the 10 as the sun was setting yeah. on like the Sunday before I would start my first day of work on Monday. Right. And it felt daunting. It was, oh, yeah, it was yeah. a lot of like, 
what have I done? Yeah, yeah. Um, what, what am I involved in? Yeah. And, yeah. I, and, and look, I still have days where I feel like that. Well, I mean, so, but, you know, working on the agency side, that's a whole other world. I mean, it's, and it seems yeah. like you, over time, you know, before you became, uh, you know, before you found your thing, you worked in a lot of different areas of this business that yeah. I, I barely understand. Because agents, for me, like, for some reason, I'm one of these idiots as talent. Uh, most of my life that I always saw that side of the business as the enemy somehow. And and you can see it in my resume. <laughs> There's a, a great gap. Well, I, look, I think that there's a lots of different kinds of agents. And I think I was lucky enough that I landed with an agent who like is in it to fight for her clients. And I think that her client list and, the, and how long her clients have been yeah. with her and the success that they've had reflects that. I mean, she signed Taika Waititi when I was her assistant. It was mm-hmm. when Rowena Arguelles. She's been with Ty- that was 2003 or it was early 2004. Yeah, right. She signed him off a black and white short film about a Maori family. Yeah, and now yeah, he's directing Thor movies, and you you couldn't escape his image if you tried. But like, she was there at the beginning. Yeah. And I think those kind of people, the ones that are trying to like, who find talented champion, people yeah. and champion them and try to build their careers in yeah. ways that are sustainable. Amazing. And yeah. I was lucky. And by the way, lucky enough to end up getting hired by a person like that. I don't know that I'd still be working in this business if I had sort of been wor- working for somebody who was like, you know, look, I'm just selling. Yeah. And those people exist, too. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So so that was your that was your beginning. That was my beginning. And then you move into what? Yeah. So um, in, in the year at the agency, I think I realized very quickly that being, I didn't want to be an agent. Yeah. Um, and the, the sort of agency assistant thing is often a springboard to like lots of different facets of the business. Sure. I was much more interested in sort of the producing side of things. Yeah. Because um, again, I thought that was a way that I could work more closely with the people that are making the thing and like be involved in the thing. Having the impact. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I got a series of executive jobs, the second of which was uh, working in development at Leonardo DiCaprio's company um, under a producer named Brad Simpson, um, who who's now the producer of Pose and, um, you know, American Crime yeah. Story. And the is he still at DiCaprio's company? No. He, oh. he has since partnered with Nina, the producer Nina Jacobson and their company Color Force has made yeah. like all these amazing TV shows um, and films. But, but I, I, I was working for him um, that's when I started The Blacklist. But I did a succession of those jobs. I worked for Leo's company in development. I worked for Sidney Pollock and Anthony Minghella. Really? Yeah. You knew Sydney? I did uh, in the last year of their lives. So I got hired like uh, maybe six months before he was diagnosed with cancer, about a year and a half before God, he died. I love that guy. He, I, I, I've been very lucky in the people that I've worked for have really just been the best people um, in many ways. And, and Sydney and Anthony are very much at the top of that list. Pollock was like, I, I don't know, Anthony, that was his production partner? And yeah. And director, right? They were both directors. Both directors yeah, they had right. Mirage Enterprises, and Sydney was sort of the L.A. And he made Anthony some great movies, London. didn't he? Sydney? Yeah. I mean, oh literally, like, you know, genre, like best in genre, in multiple genres yeah. over the last 50 years. I mean, yeah. yeah. Tootsie, Out of Africa, yeah. The Firm. I mean, it, it, it's, it's just sort of bananas. The Firm is an underrated movie. 100%. God, it's a great movie. 100%. And he was a, like, he was a great man, and I think... Great actor too. Phenomenal actor. Yeah. Um. And and, and a and a profound respect for other storytellers. I mm-hmm. mean, I think what's really interesting about their relationship was that, you know, Sydney saw Anthony's film. I believe it was truly madly deeply, and said, yeah. "Like you're doing what I'm doing. We should do it together." Yeah. What was his other big movie? Yeah, I, mean, uh, I mean, the English Patient. Oh, the English Patient. Talented right, yeah. Mr. Ripley. Yeah, yeah, Cold yeah. Mountain. I mean, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. And just again, one two of the kindest men I've met in this business or anywhere else. So with that kind of wisdom that was imparted to you and also seeing how that works, 
it is it does remain kind of interesting that you didn't somehow find yourself in kind of old school producing. I mean, I, I was like, you know, when I was working for Sydney and Anthony, the goal was to find and make things. And, and we, you know, optioned the rights to Silver Linings Playbook and, and hired David That's Russell to write a great and movie. It. Yeah. So, um, and, so and then, you did that. You, well, yeah. yeah. And then when they passed, you know, it sort of reverted to, to the, you know, the folks who ended up get, making the movie. But that was always the goal. And then I went to Universal for two years yeah. as, a, as a studio executive to learn that part of the business. And then I worked in development for Will Smith's company. And I think that. You know, I was always sort of working for somebody else to do that work. Right? Now, now, what was the inception? And I'm sure you've told the story a lot, but tell yeah. it to me, like of the the blacklist. Yeah. So I'm working for Leo's company. Yeah. And I think this is this would have been true at any of the jobs that I had subsequent, but it just happened when I was working for Leo. Yeah. You know, look, you're, you're seeing everything, right? Because if you get Leo attached to your movie, you've got to go. So all it. the scripts are coming your way. All the scripts are coming my way. Yeah. He's, and he's also like, you know, he's a white male actor between the ages of 30 and 45 and the big and arguably the biggest movie star in the world. Right. Everything's coming my way. Agents are, you know, every every day, hey, I've got Leo's next movie. Yeah. <laughs> and look, that's their job, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, it's you know, language I, yeah, um... You know, I was, again, I was a very a student person. I yeah. realized very early on in my career that, like, my competitive advantage was never going to be, like, knowing the cool people or, like, knowing the right spots or parties. Yeah. It was going to be, like, I-, I can outwork you. I can read more scripts and yeah. synthesize all that information whatever. So I would read all these scripts, and most of them weren't great. But it turns out they weren't Leo's next movie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And... You know, it, it, it was kind of a drag. Like, it's not digging ditches, but like reading 20, you know, screenplays over the course of a couple of days and having them all be mediocre to bad is like not the best way to spend one's life. Not yeah. the worst either, but it's not the best. But but it does sort of hip you to, you know, that that part of the business where you realize like just how many people are trying because you're reading solicited shit, right? That's exactly right. Yeah. So it's sort of like if this is what's going on with the stuff that's got representation, there's got to be just a, a tsunami of garbage out there with right. some good shit in it. Right. And so the real question is, is like, how do I, in this job, create a situation where most of the stuff that I'm getting and reading is good? Mm. I'm not able to make it, might not be for Leo, but like, how do I just, at a minimum, improve the, the experience of reading as many scripts as I'm having to read? But that also should then mean that like, we find more movies for Leo to either produce or star in or whatever. Right. So I'm going on vacation. This is like late 2005. I'm going to go on vacation for two weeks for the holidays. Yeah. I know I'm going to read a bunch of scripts because I'm a nerd. And I'm like, I got to make sure they're good. I just yeah. can't go on vacation and read a bunch of bad scripts. Right. So I send an email to 75 of my peers who have the same job and basically say, send me a list of your 10 favorite. 75? Unpro- you had 75 yeah. peers? Well, it, it, again, and this is just sort of part of these jobs is like you're constantly like doing breakfast, lunch, dinner, and drinks with people in jobs similar to yours and exchanging information. At, at studios, at production studios, companies. other producers. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. So, and, and a significant part or at least part of that conversation is always like, hey, man, you're reading anything good lately. Yeah. Like, like what writers, what projects do I need to know about? Yeah. And so I emailed all the folks that I had breakfast, lunch, dinner, or drinks with that year and said, send me a list of your favorite 10 unproduced screenplays. In exchange, I'll send you the combined list. I did it anonymously. Yeah. And everybody participated. Um, I think everybody but three people participated. And a few people like asked other people if other people could, could throw in. Yeah. And I, you know, threw all that into a pivot table on Excel, output it to PowerPoint and like put out this PDF, called it the blacklist yeah. and like went on vacation. Like yeah. didn't think anything of it. Right? <laughs> yeah. And I 
check my email halfway through vacation and like it's been forwarded back to me again i did it anonymously it's been forwarded yeah. back to me like dozens of times people are like yo where did this list come from right, these scripts right, are right. actually really good yeah and meanwhile i'm reading the scripts in the list and i'm like these are these are really good scripts it was yeah. literally stuff like juno and like lars and the real girl and yeah. like the queen um so i come back from vacation and everybody's talking about it and i'm like well i'm gonna get fired Right. I'm going to get this. There is no way this goes well. I'm going to get run out of town. Um, So I just didn't tell anybody for a long time. And then six months into that year, I got a phone call from an agent at then William Morris who's pitching me on a new client. He was like, hey, listen, don't tell anybody, but I have it on really good authority that this is going to be the number one script on next year's blacklist. Yeah. (laughs) He didn't know you were the guy. Yeah. And and I remember sitting there just being like, this is a practical joke. Like, what is happening right now? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then he gets off the phone and I'm sitting there like, A, it's a survey. So like even if I even if I was gonna do it again, yeah. there's no way you know what's number one on the list. And right. B, I'm not doing it again. I'm terrified about getting like run out of town so and having to go to law school. One. Yeah, six months after the first one's gone out, and all of a sudden people are using it to like sell their clients. Like the right. perspective notion of being on this list yeah, yeah. is a good thing. Yeah. So it's like, all right, maybe I should do it again. I do it again. The LA Times outs me as the person who created it. Um but it became a thing very quickly because the subsequent year, Juno gets made and does very well. Yeah. Lars and the Real Girl gets made, and, and both of them get nominated for Best Original Screenplay, and Juno wins. And so all of a sudden, I think Hollywood started saying, wait a minute, if, if you make the movies on this list, they make money and win awards? Like, right. We, that's why we do things. Well, I mean, what do you think, like... You you didn't really know all these people that w- helped you out in this, no. or, so it was this weird thing that w- obviously was exciting to them and almost sort of like it engaged them, like you know it gave them a a, a piece, yeah. like a point of view, and, right. and right. So they had a you know a chip in this game, which it must appeared uh, initially as sort of a game, yeah. like you know. So what is it that you think was stopping those movies from being made? Was is, was it just this? This collaborative effort of uh, of sort of unknown, um, you know, lower rung people giving input, younger people. How, how does it? No, it's a really interesting question, and it's only something that I sort of come to in retrospect because yeah. I certainly can't claim to be like, oh, I knew this would all spin up in the way that it has. I think there's a few factors. One, I think that the people who are participating are doing so because their job is to find good scripts, right? right? And so if if they can sort of put up a little bit of information and get a, a super valuable piece of information back, that's a valuable transaction to them. Okay. I think the reason why many of those scripts hadn't gotten made is that there's a sort of conventional wisdom about like what can work and what can't, right? So, you know, if I if I walked into a room and pitched it's a comedy about a high school senior who gets pregnant and is thinking about whether to like put the baby up for adoption or get an abortion. Mm. Hollywood's gonna gonna yeah. you know flex. Hollywood's gonna Hollywood exactly. <laughs> Lars and the real girl. Yeah, guy buys a sex doll and treats it as his uh, yeah. his girlfriend uh, to get over sort of emotional trauma. I don't know. And by the way, I was in those jobs. I remember walking into my boss's office and telling them that I read a good script and th- and them asking me to pitch it. And when when you realize that that's what the pitch is, it's a lot harder because your boss is going to be like, "Come on, man! I, I have limited time. I have a lot to do. You're really asking me to read a script about an Indian kid from the slums who goes on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire to find his like lost love." Let, let me go read this other big, you know. So they had it. So there's sensibility because, like, some of those that we're talking about here are are in smaller movies. Yeah. But and it seems to me that, like, for the most part, people want to make big hits. 
Right. And, and whatever the hell that means. But that's the key. Yeah. I think that there's your job when you are deciding what movies to finance, what movies to produce, is yeah. to figure out which are going to be big hits. And Hollywood has a shorthand for what that means, right? It means historically it's going to have a white lead. It's going to have a male lead. It's going to be a big action movie and have big action sequences, right? That's a financial hit. But you know, you're sort of entering a different zone with the blacklist. Well, I would argue... And I think this is true, and I think history sort of bears this out. Quality is the best business model. Yeah. Right. So if you, so it, you know, you can't. I can't tell you that like every fifteen million dollar movie that I sort of put out that that gets made is going to be successful. But what if we treated the best of those fifteen million dollar movies like they had the potential to make a billion dollars if you marketed yeah. them well, right? And try to build a business model around identifying the best things, financially supporting them where appropriate, and then marketing them to an audience that's likely to to receive them well. So this is the thing that still blows my mind. Yeah. So Harvard Business School did a study on the blacklist three years ago. Yeah. And they were specifically interested in, like, is there a, a noticeable economic effect of, of scripts being on the blacklist? And what they found was is that scripts that are on the annual blacklist are twice as likely to get produced as the scripts that are circulating around Hollywood that are not on the blacklist. But more notably, movies that are made from scripts on the blacklist make 90% more in revenue uh, controlling for all other factors than movie, than scripts that are not. Yeah. Which basically says Hollywood's very good at identifying what scripts are good. They're very bad at figuring out of the scripts that are good, which movies to invest in. Yeah. Right? Because if you invest in the things that a bunch of people read and love and say, God, I wish I could see this as a movie... You might end up making some smaller movies that are super financially successful and improve the economics for everybody. Right. And also, like, you know, it seems that this was sort of uh, 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 the beginning, maybe not the beginning, but it it just seems like it was uh, diversifying the way movies are made. Not just diversifying movies. That's still an ongoing project. Yeah, yeah, no, I know what you mean, though. I I think, yes, it's, it's a it's a it's a. And look, the internet facilitated this. I think the blacklist is sort of one way in which the internet has. Yeah. Because, um, you know, I, look, I wasn't about to you know, deliver 75 messages and survey 75 people before I could just hit send on an email with 75 people BCC, right? Yeah. So, like, the internet facilitated I yeah. think, all of this. I, I think it facilitates the ability to identify talent in places that historically the industry has not, right? Yeah. Historically, for you to get put on in Hollywood, you had, and this is really what happened when I launched the annual blacklist. I'd go out and speak as the blacklist guy and people would be like, it's great that you help people that are already in LA who already have reps get the attention they deserve. Right. But I wrote what I think is a pretty good script. I don't live in LA. I didn't go to the right colleges. How do I get this thing that I wrote to somebody who can do something with it? Yeah. And the answer, I would come back and ask people who were sort of more experienced in the industry than me. And the answer was like, look, enter the nickel fellowship, the Academy screenwriting competition. If you place in the top 100, someone will probably call you. Or just like, you know, move out to LA and like get a job at Starbucks and like network until Hammer, you can figure yeah. it out. And that's great. And, and you know, there's a long history of sort of that journey of being part of like making it in Hollywood. Yeah. For some people. For some people. <laughs> yeah. And there's a lot of people that, that, that haven't been able to have that experience. But I, but I think on the screenwriting thing specifically, it's not like acting or directing. If you can go into a room by yourself yeah. and will a world into existence that I want to read or see, yeah. I want you to have a chance at a career. Sure. You may not have the other skills that are necessary to navigate it, but like, and by the way, it's good for Hollywood if there's an infrastructure that allows that. You know, I, I've, I've made this joke and I, I think it's actually pretty fair. Yeah. You know, 
imagine if the NBA, if the rosters of the NBA were like only people that like personally knew the owners of the NBA teams. Yeah. As opposed to like, we're going to go out and find the best basketball players in the country and we're going to compete to like, you know, own their work. Right. I think if Hollywood approached things similarly, we would see really amazing stuff that none of us are expecting to see that will introduce us to new worlds and new personalities and new characters that frankly as an audience member I'm desperate for. That makes sense, you know, and it's sort of alongside of that, you, you know, it, it's there was just an article out I think yesterday, maybe the Atlantic about how, you know, the diversification of writers rooms is not really happening on par with expectation, yeah. but it is happening a bit. It is. But but I think that alongside of what you're saying and I've talked to this, uh, talked about this to Barry Jenkins, and I talk about it like sort of uh, with Sterling Harjo, mm-hmm. and I'm I'm uh, an, I, I I was one of the bad guys. I mean, I had a show on uh, IFC, and and I had five guys, you know, five white guys in my writing room. But but I think to just speak to what you're saying is that different points of view. This idea, because I hear it from like white writers all the time, like middle aged guys who are sort yeah. of like, I guess I'm just not going to get the work now. It's like, right. but but that's it's not because. You, you you know nothing. The only thing that's changed is we're we're getting more voices. Yeah, and and frankly, well, here's the thing. I have this weird thing, right? Where like I have no problem with the world wherein there are writers' rooms with five white male writers. Like I really yeah. don't. As long as there are a bunch of writers' rooms that are all black women, right? Like, sure. So I, I like I don't need. I, I've used this example. Who knows before. what the show's calling for? In yeah, some way. well, exactly. And, and so, and I don't need. Um, like, I don't need myself represented in every piece of art, but I do want everybody to be represented by the aggregate of all of the art. Uh, right? that, yeah, sure, that makes sense to me. But but I, I think you're talking about Hannah George's piece in the Atlantic Monthly, and that was a really good piece, and I highly recommend it to anybody uh, who wants to go googling for it. Um, because yeah, it's changing slowly, but not fast enough. And I think what we're losing there, there's the like moral and, and, and sort of philanthropical, like, Oh, yeah. diversity is important for blah, blah, blah. We're also just losing amazing stuff that could have gotten made, right? There are, there's amazing talent out there that hasn't even gotten the opportunity to show what they're capable of that we as audience members are losing because the, the industry is not prioritizing a meritocracy of identifying the best people. They're prioritizing, again, and there are reasons for this, the person that is easiest to get to who's good enough. But, it, but also, the, you know, what's dug in is what you were talking about before. It's like you can make your way through this weird, you know, uh, uh, maze, yep. maybe. Maybe. Like, you know, here's one option, you know, you enter the contest, you get the Starbucks job, you go meet people, right? So that 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 wall mm-hmm. is is there's no rules to it. Like so no. it's it's not a meritocracy, right? No, not at all. So when when we talk about all this stuff that 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 it's already difficult, but for for an Asian artist yeah. or or it's a just black writer, more difficult. Then it's like you know it's another right. step removed, just because of of the institution is already unfair. But then if there is institutional racism on top of that, yep. then it's like it's almost impossible. Yeah, I mean it's it's funny. Someone was like, well, I mean, do you think it's like ten percent more unfair, fifty percent more unfair? And I'm like, look, I don't, I can't put a number to it. But here's what I would say. If every single sort of decision tree point in a person's career was 2% more unfair, and you think about the number of decision points there are in the first year of a person's career, right? Like evaluated for a contest, meeting with a manager, getting the meeting with a manager, like that 2% exponentially 
becomes you know, a lot. And as a consequence, we see that Hollywood is among the least diverse industries in American business, which is like mind blowing, but it's true. Yeah. And, but, but on alongside of that, that through sort of desperation and persistence and technology available, there are people that can generate a thing yeah. to, and put it out into the world. And then maybe someone will be like, who the fuck made this thing? Well, this is the thing that I keep coming back to and people are like, well, do you think things will change? And I'm like, I do think they'll change, but I don't think they'll change because the, the system as it exists will correct. I think because there are brilliant artists out there who are undeniable and you and you know sterling barry ava isa like you know the list goes on and on and on and that's the thing that sort of consistently gives me hope is that even despite all of these obstacles ryan coogler happens Mm -hmm. right and does it his way and does it brilliantly and so it is possible but imagine imagine what else there is out there if they didn't have to be right. that much better but, to get that much. But in this far. moment. Yeah, at least it's possible. Right. Uh, but also in this moment, because of some of the artists you mentioned, there is a sort of collective, uh, you know, white guilt going on yeah. in the business. So, you know, there they are. There was this there's this opening of, of yeah. like where those undeniable talents, they're craving it. To, to to sort of validate their fucking, you know, uh, uh, progressive bona fides, right? I think that's 100% right. And I think that the real question is going to be five, ten years from now. Right. W- what are the numbers look like? Because it's very easy to say, look at all these individual success stories that we've had. And, mm-hmm. and there are going to be a lot of them because there are a lot of people yeah. that are going to that are going to take advantage of these momentary opportunities. And because they've had to over-prepare just to have any opportunity at all, they're going to blow the doors off the thing. Yeah. We're seeing it time and time again. But what, is, what are the systemic numbers look like um that'll really tell the tale five to ten years out and i'll be honest i'm skeptical right like we saw a lot of people last year in the wake of george floyd's murder make a lot of commitments about money and time and change right and and here we are you know more than a year out and like most of those commitments have not been lived up to the conversation has shifted support of black lives matter amongst the white community has i believe it's actually lower than it was prior to, to george floyd's murder uh just in terms of like you know I don't know if it was Pew or like general polling, but like the Hollywood is very good at narrative. We can recognize when the narrative has gone wrong. We can make adjustments to make sure the narrative bends in our favor. For me, I I think we always have to be revisiting the facts of the thing and to make sure that the facts and the narrative are actually well reconciled. Right. There, there, there seems to be some success being made in diversifying fiction. (laughs) How how do we... (laughs) uh, That is a statement with many levels, and I love it. (laughs) You know, I love it. So, you know, what about reality? Where how where how we doing with reality is the question. That's exactly right. And but I I do think like what we were talking about at the beginning of this conversation in terms of any movie can have an effect on your point of view. That the more point of views that you engage in creatively on every level of the business, uh, you know, if it is you know, done on meritocracy and on, uh, you know, a diversity of voices, then that should have an impact on reality. That's, that's, that's the idea. Mm-hmm. I mean, again, I just think, I think about the ways in which the things that I've seen, let's just limit it to movies and television, yeah. have sort of like affected how I see myself. And, and, and I just feel like, yeah, in a world with more, better stuff from as many points of view as possible, we 
just inevitably all benefit. Yeah, and but the weird thing is, is that also like what we were talking about at the beginning is you know what matters, what you know what you know what is re- be, being that there's no center uh, in in a lot of ways, and everything is sort of fragmented in the mm-hmm. media universe. There is a a, a kind of um, very real kind of uh, momentum outside of the industry as we know it to to sort of create a world of uh, of of white fascistic yeah. uh, 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 entertainment product that there is something there is this this thing that's happening with, specifically between right wing politics and comedy that is threatening uh, in a way because yeah. it's they don't care about old show business right I I mean look if if white fascists want to have a comedy festival like who am I to stop them <laughs> I, 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 no no but it, but but I, but I here's the thing like I guess I, the bigger point is just that like how how long does the old business survive um is it still the you, you know I, what? that's a very good question that I don't know that I have answer yeah. I, I think it will require a generational shift in yeah. who has access to the resources to determine what gets made and what doesn't yeah and I think that that will take much longer I mean literally you know I was peripherally involved in, in, in this McKinsey study about sort of black Hollywood and sort of the realities of race in, in Hollywood. And, and what they found was that like at the top level, Hollywood is, or film specifically, yeah. is the least diverse sector in American business, less diverse than the Trump administration was. Yeah. And I don't know how you make the necessary change until that changes because part of the necessary change is that not being the case anymore. But yeah, but there was also an argument to be made uh, in Variety in that piece that you were involved in, right? Where you said that that there's, you're leaving money on the table. Yeah, yeah well, that that study found that like there's ten billion dollars a year annually. Yeah, well, that's what a year means. Yeah, ten billion dollars a year lost because of that lack of uh, because of sort of anti-black uh, racism, and that's just black people. Yeah. that's not like Latinx community, the right. LGBTQ right. community, women, right? Like. I think it's nine percent of studio film directors are women. Mm-hmm. Like, if we don't think that just that alone doesn't affect like historical gender relationships yeah. and like how we ended up in a, this Me Too moment, I don't know to tell you, but yeah. like we have all been sold a bill of goods about what appropriate male female reaction is and like what does power look like and who does power look like, and I think we all internalize those things and then we replicate them in our everyday lives. That's right. Well, it it becomes clearer and clearer that the human brain is really just this kind of like ancient recording device that's pretty, you know, not reliable. And and it's people's sense of self and their belief systems are easily manipulated uh, for for better or for worse that, you know, I I agree with you (laughs) that that it's a sad thing that it doesn't take much to create a societal shift. Right. I mean, I think, look, fundamentally, I have this, I think, inarguably very naive view that art and storytelling at a mass scale has the potential to do a lot of good. But I'm also aware of the extent to which it has the potential to do a lot of bad. And I think we've seen historically a lot of the bad that it has the potential to do. I think but if, ba- what is that bad? How does that manifest? Like just, you know, like just fodder? Well, the most, the most, the most on the nose version of this is birth of a nation, right? Well, of course, like, right like, back but, to so where, that's yeah. like the simplest version of sure. it. I think in other ways, you know, it, it's, it, it can be anything from, you know, the, the permissibility of, of, uh, of anti-Muslim sentiment. Sure. Um, okay. Right. You right. know, the notion stereotyping, of, yeah, stereotyping, right. like 
what is appropriate male female right. uh, interaction sure. in a workplace like there's yeah. any number of ways in which i think that like those things can have effects I- irresponsible stereotyping and and mediocrity uh, in, in the name of maintaining a status quo financially right and and here's the thing i think that that doesn't mean that any individual movie like yeah. there can be films that in, that that have stereotypes of black people but that are used artistically to tell a story. Right. I'm okay with that, and I think that's a critical part of art is to be able no, to right, acknowledge the reality it, that we live in. But it, that's but that's responsible. Right. You know but, that. But the question knows. is, is like, what's the again? Coming, getting back to aggregates, uh-huh. I, I, I'm I'm loath to criticize any individual film as being responsible for the way in which we live. Yes. I think it's more about the systems that we build that decide what culture gets made, how it gets made, and by whom. Yeah. And that ultimately. And, and sort of no one is individually responsible for it, which is part of why, like, it can sort of, like, you know, well, fall I mean, apart. But, it, but it's sort of where the problem we're at now, it has fallen apart in a lot of ways. Exactly. And, and we do have, I know people that no longer give a fuck about success in mainstream show business because they're yeah. finding success in their own little worlds. Well, and what's fascinating about that is, is that's very, that mirrors very much what a lot of sort of historically oppressed communities have had to do just by necessity. Yeah. Right? So it's like- That's right. The black community was doing that in the I, 60s and 70s. Exactly. Right. It's like, okay, you guys are not down with what I'm doing. I'm never going to be able to break down that door, uh-huh. so I'm going to go do my own thing. That's right. Now, the circumstances are very different, admittedly. Yeah. But- I think we're going to see sort of the development of these ecosystems and micro ecosystems that interact uh-huh. with and connect to the big ecosystem. And I'm most interested in trying to find ways to identify people who are, are telling like wildly ambitious uh, movies, television, scripted stories, and giving them the, the access and resources they need to sort of realize their artistic right. ambitions. Oh, so so, you, so that's how the the, the current. So you still do the blacklist, but now yeah. you have a, a, a place where people can can sell send you unsolicited scripts yeah. there's a service you're providing exactly so there's still the annual list we do yeah. that every year but sort of underneath the umbrella of the blacklist as an organization we built a bunch of stuff and sort yeah. of the biggest is you know it goes back to me being asked those questions of like how do I get my script to somebody yeah. in the industry hmm. and I, I never heard a good answer but I also knew that like if you were like a suburban dad in Winston-Salem, North Carolina right. and you and your kids came home from school and you're like load up the minivan we're moving to LA dad got a job at Starbucks right. like you're probably not the best parent, yeah. But that doesn't mean you're not a good writer, yeah. So how can we sort of build an infrastructure that allows people to to be discovered if they have talent? So you built this two sided marketplace. Writers can upload their script and host it for thirty dollars a month. They can pay to get evaluations by folks who work in the industry yeah. on the quality of their script. They get that feedback regardless. Yeah. And then if the things are good, we give them free hosting, free script evaluations, and tell everybody in Hollywood like. This is a really good script. You should probably do something. How's that working out? Really well. Oh, yeah? So literally hundreds of writers have gotten signed at major agencies and management companies from literally around the world, the first of which happened like six weeks after the website launched back in 2012. Um, You know, we have partners, partnerships with like almost like right now MGM and Warner uh, Media to identify writers that'll get a guild minimum two-step deal to write a movie for a major studio. Yeah. We're working with uh, partners like the NRDC to give grants to writers Here's a check. You're going to work on your next thing related yeah. to environmental storytelling. Wow. Here's a check to support you in, in that endeavor. Wow. Um, so, again, it, it's about providing as much feedback to writers who are outside the system as possible or those who are inside who want feedback from a third party, mm. making sure that when we find good scripts, 
we tell the industry, like, this is a good script, you should do something with it. And then creating real opportunities to put money in writers' pockets and facilitate more great stuff getting made. That's um, great. Including, and we're producing some of that stuff as well. Oh, so, it's great. Yeah. So it's, it's starting to take off. I, I think so. Yeah. Good. I mean, it, it, look, it, it, there was this funny moment during the pandemic where, you know, all anybody could do was read because they couldn't make stuff. Right. And so I started getting a lot of incoming phone calls from like very high level agents and managers that were like, so my client has read all of the stuff they have on offer and they want to really read really good scripts. And I feel like that's a thing you do. Yeah. So we, I, we'd send them these care packages of three and four scripts for their clients based on what their clients were looking for. And I guess word got out that we were doing this because more and more managers would be like, so I heard, I heard you, I heard, I heard you have a line on the, on the really good shit. You got the good shit. Exactly. Yeah. And, and you know, there were writers who don't live in New York yeah. or LA getting incoming phone calls from like Academy Award winning actors. Like, so I read your script. I think it's really good. Can we talk about it? Um, and it's funny because, you know, occasionally we get incoming emails from writers who use yeah. the site and they'll tell a story like that. Yeah. And it'll be like, look, when I built this thing, I have a healthy ego. I felt yeah. like we could do some good. Yeah. Yeah, that exceeds my expectation. Yeah. I didn't, I, that was not. Because that's yeah. like the, it's sort of like that's one, of, it's a good that's tangible in a human way. Right, exactly. That like, you know, you're getting an email I, like, yeah. and you did a thing it's, that facilitated something amazing. Look, my, the highest honor of my professional life, and it's honestly difficult to imagine this being exceeded, and it sucks that it came so early in my life. Yeah. The Writers Guild of America gave me this, this award called the Evelyn Berkey Award. Yeah. Uh, that's for like elevating the honor and dignity of screenwriters. Yeah. And like, Everything that we've built, and I have a team now, it's not just me, yeah. um, has really been about identifying and celebrating great writers, period. And um, for to have the Writers Guild think that I did that, like, yeah, I don't know how you top that. That's great. <laughs> like, I, I, I genuinely yeah. like. The one thing we didn't talk about is is the disaster of the uh, Oscars. <laughs> <laughs> I mean. Yeah, I does it even matter though? Again, like uh, returning back to the beginning, and I yeah. know, like you know, we had no. a nice end there, but I forgot that I wanted to no, talk no, no, about no, no, this. No, we is should that, talk about it. Is that like you know that I don't even like, especially after you know Soderbergh's Oscar ceremony, <laughs> you know, despite the pandemic or anything else, yeah. it and, and I understood on some level it was designed to honor the working. Yeah. you know, people, and, and it, it did to a degree, but also it made me realize, like, is it necessary to even exist outside of an industry event? I, it's weird. So I was definitely a kid when I was living in West Central Georgia as a kid who watched the Oscars. Yeah. Um, and I think the longer I've been in the industry, the more I actually am okay. Like, I think they matter. And I think... I actually want, I root for the Oscars to be successful as yes, an institution. Me too. I, I love it. I used to love watching it all the time when because I was Because the idea of like once a year we're going to come together like to celebrate them. the notion of movies and, yeah. and, and celebrate the people who did a particularly good job. Right. That's right. a fundamentally good thing. Now how we do it there's a lot of different conversations around sure. that. There's the Oscar So White debate. There's the um, what, what does the show look like. Yeah. I'm personally a fan of Let's take really big swings with the show. Yeah. Like maybe they miss, they miss. Yeah, take another big swing the next year. Like, what's, but, that, what's that look like to you, though? Big swing. I have like, no idea. More musical numbers. I, 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 <laughs> I, I here's uh, the thing. If I had an answer, I would probably reach out to them and say, "Hey, I think I have an idea here." I, for me, it's like find talent. It, it comes down to the same way I sort of approach making movies: find talented people and trust them to take a big swing. Yeah, and, and hopefully you've chosen the right ones. Sometimes you don't. Sometimes it doesn't work out. But at the end of the day, as long as it has this core of celebrating great stuff, the great people who make it, 
I can be cool with that. Do you that. think that is evolving alongside of where the business should be going? It seems like it may be. When you, when you, when you, what, mean, what do you mean exactly? Honoring and awarding, you know, uh, at least uh, something that transcends expectations or the status quo of what the Oscars is about. Yeah. Well, I think the question of like what, I think is a broader question about what does merit look like, mm. right? Like I think that the Oscars for a very long time had a relatively narrow view of what a laudable film looked like. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's expanding as the, the sort of membership of the Academy expands. But I think that there have been other moments in the history of the Academy where that's happened, right? I have to imagine that with the advent of the giant blockbuster, there was a debate around, you know, is what Jaws, right. you know, is Jaws the best picture? Sure. Right. And I, I think we see that now, right? Like are Marvel movies, movies, right? Like why, these debates are ongoing. Well, why not, why not uh, break the Oscars apart just like the industry's broken apart and have, uh, you know, different Oscars for different things? I, I think that there's arguments in favor of many of those approaches. Yeah. I don't know what the answer is. I do like the idea of the entire community coming together, community yeah, and groups, yeah. coming together to celebrate exceptional and, work and watching and Billy medium. Crystal sing. Yes, I agree with you. Um, <laughs> I look, I, I remember, I remember, I remember Billy Crystal being like rolled out as Hannibal Lecter that yes. year. Like I was a kid in South yeah, Georgia watching that stuff. Yeah. yeah. And again, I think again, I perhaps naively, probably naively, yeah. I sort of continue to remain really hopeful about like the creative talent of some of the people that are doing this stuff sure. because I've never had a year where there haven't been a bunch of times where I've started watching something and ended it by just being like, my God, they did that shit. Yeah. And I want to watch it again immediately. Right? Like if I have a year where I I don't get to see something like Underground Railroad or Parasite or like, sure, maybe I'll be like, you know what? Maybe we should just wrap all this up. But as long as like people keep doing stuff that makes me feel and and delivers like some level of awe yeah and makes me sort of leave the movie theater like with new eyes yeah you're in. I, i'm in yeah, <laughs> yeah i'm in it's, it's yeah. just kind of that simple and yeah. and you know me too it would have been great if i could have like felt that way about medicine but it never worked out that way yeah well i mean i think well like medicine like you know it, it's kind of uh like once you get the hang of it you know the job is what it is See, Grey's Anatomy would suggest different. <laughs> I'm not sure. I, I don't know. No, how I, I, you're probably right, but I do know. Well, obviously, you're right because, like, you know, doctors, like, as much as they know, they can't seem to know most things. Well, about, look, everybody's different. I hear, well, here's the other thing. I think this is actually why my brother chose emergency medicine specifically. Is, yeah. is that he wanted something where it's like, yeah, you prepare as much as you can. Yep. But at the end of the day, like on the day. There's the thing, and you do your best. And yeah. I, I also just think that at the end of the day, it's kind of life. Yeah. yeah. You know, you prepare as much as you can, but on the day, you're going to do your thing. If it goes well, it goes well. If it doesn't go well and you're responsible, like, sure. maybe, yeah, maybe deal with that. And sometimes it's not going to go well and it's not your fault, and you got to reckon with that, too. Sure. It just it depends it, it, what kind of stakes you want to live with. Well, yeah. <laughs> right? Like I, I, I feel... Broad spectrum yeah, of things not going well. I would prefer that... Yeah. Life and death, immediately at least, are not uh, the stakes of my individual decisions. Yes, I, I'm, I'm right there with you. It was good talking to you, man. You too. All right, interesting stuff, wasn't it? Why was I just did a Carson pause? Uh, the Blacklist, you can check it out at blcklst.com. That's blcklst.com. 
Rockauto.com. And now I will retool an old riff for you. Everywhere. <laughs> 